picture of a tree. I, I like it. I like the picture okay. of the tree. Okay, good. Hang on to it. Yeah. I actually often wonder what type of tree that is. Hmm. Is it it's some sort of pine? Yeah. Fur? Well, it's, got, it's got needles and cones. Right. It does have needles. Is it in French? <laughs> I don't know. That's more, Dan, we do not need any more French stuff after today's screen. No, no more, more French stuff. That's why I need to take it down. No more French on this podcast, please. Uh, I mean, we uh, may have skirted close to it this week. Anyway, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We can't start now. No. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> no. How I are we going to hour if you start talking about the thing immediately? <laughs> Quick, Jack, what should we talk about? <laughs> what should we talk about? Well, I don't, I don't have hey, any. how are you, Dan? I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I like, I'm, I feel like. I feel like I'm just terminally fatigued. Yeah, I, I, know. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to get over it, hopefully, at some point. Or I won't. <laughs> but, like, like, there's nothing fatiguing been happening, particularly recently. But there I go. There we go. Um, yeah. I'm just carry, that, carrying a huge amount of fatigue, I think. We call that having a job. That's yes. what that is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, yes, get to be involved in a music festival next weekend. Should be oh, is it, actually, is it next weekend? Oh, that's it's, cool. I didn't realize. Wait, 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 wait. What are we now? <laughs> What's from the from God. the listener's perspective, it's Friday, so a week away. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah, ten okay. days. That's what I assumed. It's ten days. Okay. It's all going to be fine. <laughs> spent, spent two days trying to put up a big marquee. The other, it's a moderate sized marquee. It's a small marquee, and uh, and and we still haven't succeeded. Two days later. Oh. Um, <laughs> well, you got ten days. Yeah, it's fine. fine. What else is there to do? No, no there isn't. Any, like, I don't like. Uh, there isn't loads of other things to do. Yeah, well, will you get to enjoy any of the music festival, or is this just like a working vacation kind of thing? I don't even though it's not even a vacation. Like, Jack, Jack, Jack. Um, <laughs> what is enjoyment? Because oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, I'm never particularly sure. <laughs> Good answer. I, I, I mean, like that's my, that's my, that's my, um, <laughs> that's my uh, the locus of my being. That's the question. That's like, hmm. How have I enjoyed myself? What, what is that being? Like? <laughs> <laughs> what is being? Yeah. What being. is being? Yeah. This is, this like is like... Was, there, was a, there was a lot of, like, last week's reading had a lot of, like, being stuff in it. Mm. Well, yeah. There is, Be like the circle. Yeah. I don't mm. know. Anyway. Mm. Things are too anyway. square. That's what I took away from that. <laughs> too square. You know? Yes. Yes. Well, that was our problem. These tents are too square for the oval shapes that we're trying to fit them into. <laughs> Anyhow. Yeah. Anyhow. Um, I'm doing okay. I don't know whether I answered that question. But... <laughs> yeah, well, you, I mean, you answered it by saying, what is enjoyment? What? <laughs> we all can, we have a general idea of how you're doing, if that's your answer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but that's not how I'm doing right now. That's just how okay, I am. Yeah, anyway. that's just in the back of your mind, considering. Yeah. Smelling yeah. it over. Yeah. 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 How Go am I Jack. doing? Um, I'm alive, Dan. That's how I'm doing. Okay. Just give another cryptic answer. <laughs> that's how I'm doing. Um, you know what though? So last last episode we had our little mailbag thing where somebody asked about um something. Technology and revolutions and yeah, yeah, bordering on a something we you would talk about in an Althuser episode, which was a little mm. unnerving. But mm. this week, I actually had a question for you, Dan, because oh, no. in a different section <laughs> he's not, of he's today's... Not, he's not warned me about this. <laughs> <Let's Yeah>. just... <laughs> Here's, you know what? I haven't really thought about it at all, oh, and okay, I don't okay. know if it's a coherent question. Okay. So... Well, as long as you have an incoherent answer after okay, the listener has heard my incoherent answer, then it will all be fine. might even have one before you. We'll see. Oh, okay. Please. Um, <laughs> my, okay, so in today's reading, in an essay before it, 
it, we read something from EndNotes 5. We'll get to that. In an essay before what we read, I saw the EndNotes people describe themselves as a Marxist journal for anarchists. And I was like, okay, okay. I kind of mm. like that. That's interesting. And so I was thinking, I was like, is it easier? This it might be something we've talked about on the show before. Is it easier to talk Marxism? And I don't want to say like talk sense because that's like very like domineering or whatever, like talk Marxism to anarchists, or is it easier to like talk kind of hierarchy and stuff to your typical commie? You know what I mean? Because like us, we are, you know, commies and like, but I think that the average commie that you meet on the street probably has some issues with hierarchy and some issues with maybe like some authoritarian <laughs> tendencies, perhaps. And as we uh, will see later on, maybe some uh, pedagogically and pastorally uh, uh, volunteerist attitudes. Um, but I, yeah, that's my question. I reckon just for us to ponder before we actually get into the reading, what's easier to do to talk like organization and planning and that kind of stuff to anarchists and theory or hierarchy and power dynamics to communists slash Marxists. What do you think? I mean, there's a certain extent to which I feel like um, if you have like a perhaps in some respects, non-orthodox approach to how you call yourself, how you would describe yourself as being a Marxist or a communist, um, or maybe even an orthodox approach to being a communist, yeah. uh, as, a, as opposed to being um, orthodox, meaning like pre nineteen fourteen, as opposed to post nineteen seventeen Marxism, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, if you have like a, n a non conventional way of being a Marxist, then um, if you're then talking to an anarchist, someone who already is at least shares a intellectual understanding and a set of political goals and aspirations with you already, then it's probably uh, quite a fruitful conversation to be had there. And one which is actually probably going to be quite generative of um, interest, interesting discussion and ideas, right? There's enough overlap, but enough difference that um, it's worthwhile explaining uh, certain aspects of your thinking or like certain standpoints, I suppose. Um so what what are the two I'm either trying to organize anarchists mm. or, or or just like talk kind of some maybe more like I'm a Marxist Leninist or I'm a Marxist Leninist <laughs> Maoist like kind of off the cliff you know what I mean Oh I see yeah yeah, yeah. um I mean I, I mean I, I think it's probably quite easy to given that like a lot of anarchists are also organizers, right? And recognize the value in organization and just have a different understanding of what it is to organize. Um, and and actual, actually, there's a lot of language in this text. I mean, I know what this is why this is this question is relevant to today's episode, right? Because there's a lot of language in this text about differentiating between um, uh, different versions of answering this question or uh, approaching these topics that are covered in this text today. But um, uh so you don't have to come down one way or the yeah, other i uh, think it's just something to ponder yeah because i do think anarchists like, so i'd like to try and work out what it is that i'm trying to tell to a to a orthodox like hmm. suit like marxist leninist what am i trying to yeah. do to a marxist leninist <laughs> what am i trying tell, to do to them <laughs> question the authoritarian nature of their politics and, and yeah i and, suppose so and sort of like find common ground uh, in a productive and fruitful way, uh, I suppose so. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it would be easier to like inject a certain amount of thinking around organization 
into a conversation with a, an anarchist, anarchists who are usually quite active in types of organization anyway, um, as opposed to trying to talk an orthodox Marxist Leninist out of sort of command and control approaches to organization or or economics or what have you. Maybe also because the, the the anarchist probably has a more practical approach to everyday politics compared to a, your average Marxist-Leninist who might <laughs> might uh, might approach answering a question with a slightly um, dogmatic and also less historically contemporarily relevant set of markers, starting points, presumptions. Mm. What's mm. the word? Uh, things. Yeah, things. Things. Yeah. A, a priori I assumptions. It is funny because we are just basically talking about who is it easier to be a volunteerist towards? <laughs> <laughs> who is it easier to teach and to talk down to? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I suppose it is a bit of a loaded question because it's like, who's it easy? It's almost like who's it easier to organize with? And the answer is going to be anarchists because that's just kind of like what they do. They kind of, that's just what they do. And so whenever, if somebody were to come along and be like, hey, you know, even just like anarchist cybernetics or whatever, like they'd probably be like open to that and be like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Even if there is a like, you know, you're not my dad, don't, you know, you know, you don't, you're not my boss. I don't, I don't hierarchy. What the fuck are you talking about? Mm -hmm. But um, maybe as well as if we, if we like reframed the question, we could just as easily say like the communists, right? Because it's like, if the question was, you know, who's it easier to build like a viable, like political long-term strategy with? I mean, the Leninists or whoever that we're stereotyping would say them, right? And maybe it would be easier, but um, I suppose it just depends on what organizing you're doing. It's easier to talk to anarchists, I'll say that, for most of the time. I mean, there are pricks on both ends, right? But what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those, we might be those pricks, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after today, we're communizers, Dan. Oh, yes. Putting them, putting down the, slamming my fist on the table. That's what we are. <laughs> um. All right. Anything else on that? That was just a quick one. I no, think just to, no, uh, just to no, warm us up. An, an interesting thought experiment. Good question. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Spoke. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's what we're. That's what we're. Although it does, it does, it does, it does raise the question of whether we have approached or should approach going forward in the podcast, approaching in good faith certain. Um, Marxist-Leninist tenants. I mean, I know we read a little bit about. We oh, sure. Talked, we talked a little bit about like um, uh, democratic centralism recently, and sort of consider some of that terminology. So it's not something we don't do. And I mean, listen up next week, and then we won't be communizers anymore. <laughs> we'll be Marxist-Leninists. You know? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, I'll go back to being we'll a Maoist. Just go and, we'll, <laughs> we'll just go and reread *People's Republic of Walmart*, and we'll be. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. We'll just listen. All we got to do is make a republic, Dan, expand that to representatives, and then just use Amazon's algorithm, and that's communism. As far as I can tell, that is yeah. just communism. <laughs> I mean, that would be a lot better than what we have now. That's what I'll say. I find it very hard, as a lot of people do, to like get mad, like at Leninists or at like, like as long as you're not like a well, as long as you're not like a social democrat or whatever, or like one of these so-called patriotic socialists. I find it very hard to like get mad at people because it's like, hey. I don't personally think that like organizing in say, you know, the labor party, labor party Marxists, or like in maybe certain other uh, uh, comparable organizations in America that basically just feed into the democratic party is really necessarily a good long-term strategy. But I also don't think it's terrain to just be completely 
you know, given away. So it's like, if somebody tells me that that's what they're doing, I'm like, fuck yeah, <laughs> that, that rocks, you know, good for you. So I don't know. Don't have convictions is my, uh, is my advice to people. It'll make it a lot easier to get along with people. <laughs> there's a guy, there's a guy who um, quite stalwartly once a week is out on the high street here selling the socialist and um the socialist what is yeah, that? yeah i think it's the this the newspaper for the socialist party of england okay. and wales i think okay uh i think who knows one of one of those uh, one of them <laughs> and i sort of i just i respect it you know you just stand there yeah sit down there hold your paper yeah you know it's oftentimes i'll walk the by flag. i'm not doing that <laughs> yeah exactly i mean oftentimes i'll walk by the people doing that out here and it's just like they'll just be getting hassled and it's mm. just like, fuck me, I wouldn't want to do that every Saturday. Mm. Like, give I mean, it's me a, a fun strategy, isn't it? You just put yourself out there deliberately to provoke people. I guess so. I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, not necessarily what they're doing. It's propagandizing, people. right? Yeah. 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 yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, propagandize. Hey, good for yeah. you. Go propagandize. That's what I say. Enjoy yourself. Um, I'll be at my allotment. Thank you. I'm, I'm just like the, you know, the I just want to grill meme. It's just that I just want to grow beans. <laughs> just want to grow just want to grow beans dude i've got a pumpkin growing that's fucking massive i'm so happy i got these like pumpkin seeds from the shop they're like f1 seeds so i probably shouldn't have gotten them but they were like called like pumpkin giant or something like this and i was like yes please mm. like, it's fucking massive pumpkin growing you, you can enter into the annual allotments like awards <laughs> yeah. ceremony i'm dangerously close to doing insurrection at the allotment they're really, really <laughs> beginning to get under my skin right now so we'll see <laughs> Uh -huh. um okay let's get into it dan long preamble if okay. there are any topics anybody wants to, uh, us to talk about at the beginning of the show auxiliary statements gmail.com hassle us tell us we're wrong um but now it's time to talk about something uh that everybody loves which is communization again so a long time ago i don't know like a year or something ago we read all of endnotes one in its totality um enjoyed it it was very good I don't know if enjoyed it was the right word. It was it was a little bit maddening. It was extremely French. It was a little bit like, oh my God, you guys like are on the exact same side of things. There's just this slight disagreement for this little like esoteric sect. And it filled up like 250 pages. But it was very good, enough for us to want to go back to EndNotes. So this week, uh, we're reading something from EndNotes 5, The Passions and the Interests. And the title of this essay is um, Revolutionary Motives. It's by a fellow named Jasper Burns, um, and it is kind of what it says. It's an attempt to figure out why people act the way that they do in the lead up to revolutions and in revolutions, and how and why those revolutions fail, and how and why we can get them to succeed. Um, I found it fucking awesome. I like... I, at the beginning, I was a little bit like, okay, we'll see where this is going. So it gets into a lot of game theory stuff. But then by the end, like I finished it like on my lunch break today and I was just like, yes, like the last section is so cool. So, I mean, sorry, you know, like the last, what the, what the last section made me think was this really deserves the kind of book cover that you get on Murray <laughs> Bookchin books. It does. <laughs> it totally does. It's very, I mean, there's like a bit at the end, that bit that's just like fiction. There's like a page of fiction that's kind of like there to kind of, I suppose, illuminate what this future would look like that he's putting forward of like revolutionary strategy or whatever. Um, uh, very reminiscent of Poor Pearl's Almanac, I'll say that. Mm -hmm. It's like very reminiscent of that. But um, yeah, I really dug this. And one thing I'll say, uh, damn, before I kick it over to you, is that the McNair stuff 
is the book uh, Revolutionary Strategy is really good because it gives you a solid thought out game theory for if you're trying to do like a classically socially democratic party, here's what you have to think about. Here's the game theory behind it all. Here's what's going to happen unless you do it like this. And it's really good, whether or not you're like a social democrat, leninist or whatever, um, neo-cout, as some people would say, it's, it's still worth reading. This, on the other hand, is like game theory for actual revolutions themselves um, and why proles act in the way that we do during those times and why we do things that we should do and why we don't do things that we should do, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, and so I found this level of like concrete analysis. Yeah, very, very illuminating. What do you think? Yeah, I think there was a huge amount um, packed into this text. I really did enjoy the 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 development on a game theoretical approach to revolutions and a sort of expanding of the terminology of what a revolution means and um, and it, and giving a sort of like a, a, a game theoretic explanation of revolutions that also encompasses an analysis of counter revolutions and how that happens and a very succinct, I think, explanation as to uh what is to be avoided in a revolutionary process um and 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 actually almost like a more comprehensive explanation of communization than i've actually seen in anything else that we've read i don't know whether we've read something that gave a really good definition of what was meant by communization but um coming from a more an almost like analytic um scientific explanation of what this social process would look like um starting with like uh, discussion of the prisoner's dilemma and sort of expanding from that to the, get to the point where uh, you're in in a position to explain the process of communization in similar kinds of terminology. Um, so I think this text does encompass uh, that, but also um, uh, but also does an amazing job of just re-explaining um, Marx's approach to politics and um, founding all of this thinking in a very in based upon. Um, sort of standard historical materialist thinking, which was also uh, really pleasing to see. And then also just this engagement with um, theories around human nature, which is something that I've been quite avoidant of thinking of in the past or quite skeptical of, but I'm now beginning to realize it's quite an important thing to engage. Obviously, this doesn't make a declaration about what human nature is, but it definitely does touch on um, human beings as they exist um, Transhistorically, by which I mean human beings as they exist between different modes of production, you know, so I'm talking about something about human beings, about their needs um, that aren't fully determined by the social relations of any particular mode of production, but rather are sort of interacting with those social relations, or um, maybe the social relations of a mode of production are determinative of how those underlying should we call them like elements of human nature express themselves, but that it's not the mode of production is the only thing that exists, but like there is some substance to human beings beneath that, which was also um, fun to think about reading this. And we'll be it's nice like to talk the, about with you. It's like the, it reminded me actually of the dialectical biologist stuff, because it was a lot more like people will, these different elements of so-called human nature, whatever underlying human nature is, they are bought out, say, altruism or greed or whatever, or spite are bought out by your environment, right? By this interplay between the organism and the environment and also like his history as well. That's kind of like when we talk about his critique of the prisoner dilemma, he's really like you need to situate every decision that's being made in time and in history and not just as this like thing that exists in a vacuum. Um, but we will get there. Mm-hmm.
So yeah, I mean, fuck, there's a lot to get through. I think I don't have any background in game theory, Dan. I don't know if you do. Um, um, okay. oh, <laughs> oh, wow. So, well, I mean, uh, how... Half half of my undergraduate degree is in politics, and a lot of that was specialized in like political science. Um, okay. And at the time, I was quite interested in like uh, political science and sort of like doing very analytic research into politics. Um, I mean, I think what actually this did, what this cleared up was um, it answered a lot, it corrected a lot of misunderstandings I'd had about. <laughs> um, my limited interaction with game theory, you know, in your like first year. At, at uni and you have one week where you do okay this week we're going to talk about game theory kind of thing um but it was nice to be reminded about some of that terminology uh but i i haven't got any expansive understanding of it beyond that beyond some very limited effort to read some analytic marxism and some um, rational choice marxism and stuff in the past but you've tried um, i've tried i've tried okay more than i've done (laughs) (laughs) um but my point is Go read it for yourselves, as we always say, uh-huh. because we're Definitely. not going to be able to get everything that's in here across. It's like 40 pages, 50 pages, something like that. But um, he builds a really, really well-constructed argument here because he's doing like what you're saying. He like he uh, he starts with kind of the history of Marxist movements and brings you through all of those. And uh, and then he's like brings you through kind of a crash course in game theory stuff as it relates to what he's talking about then a little bit about like history of revolutions. And then he's like, and this all ties together in my argument here. So we'll do our best, but go read it yourselves. So I think, I think we start where he starts, where he basically begins by wondering like, why is it that people revolt in the first place, right? How do revolutions happen? Uh, why do they fail? What makes, why do they fail? What makes them last for like a determinate amount of time? Why are some short? Why are some long? That sort of thing. And he basically says that one of the main things that a lot of lefties assume is that the defining feature of all of these revolutions is the consciousness of the proletariat. Um, and it's either that or it's just like complete, oh, because this person made the wrong choice, which I think we can just kick out <laughs> kind of as Marxists. Obviously, there are moments where people have outweighed uh, importance on the historical stage, but I don't know if that's like the defining moment for how and why revolutions fail. Um, but yeah, he focuses on this idea of consciousness, right? And he calls the people that believe in this volunteerists, and then he breaks them up into two different categories, right? He says, you got your pastoralists, and you got your pedagogical volunteerists. And he says, a volunteerist basically just think that it's the idea, it's the job of, you know, the enlightened individuals or groups to go around teaching and leading the proletariat um, to the correct courses of action. And he says, the pastoralists are people like Lenin who, and to to a certain extent also Kautsky, although I think that Lenin definitely refined those ideas, who think that, you know, the proletariat needs to be led away from so-called like trade union consciousness, because that's all that it'll develop on its own, right? And then you got your pedagogical, uh, pedagogical volunteerists, Jesus fucking Christ, who are people like Gramsci, right? And they're just like, the defining element is that you need to teach people the right ideas and teach them consciousness. And he says that, you know, it's not, it's rarely one or the other. People oftentimes, you know, blend both. Lenin blended both. Gramsci blended both. But this is, this idea of volunteerists, I would say actually kind of in this analysis covers most of the left. Because he also says it's also kind of anarchist, right? Anarchists are often just pedagogical, right? They often just go in and are like, oh, we'll just teach people things and then they'll do the right thing. And he's like, well, no, there has to be something more of all of this. It can't just be consciousness. And this is what leads him to make the distinction between interests and motives. Um, 
thought that was a really good way of framing it. It's just like, boom, right out the bat. You know what I mean? Just like, this is what most people think. And the rest of this essay is going to be why that's wrong and not only wrong, but also counter, uh, counter constructive, non, non helpful. It's not very helpful <laughs> to revolutionary movements. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, there, there are certain ways in which the, um, the description he gives of Marx's politics and the socialism, um, of the 19th century, um, really impact the understanding of this distinction, right? Because um, what all of Marx's politics were about were, um, well, a lot of them were about opposing the utopian socialists, you know, opposing the people with the plan that they were just going to instigate. Um, and of course, that stems from um, as a much more philosophical line of thinking, which says, well, it's not, it's the sort of like materialist versus the ideal, idealistic, idealist approach, right? It's not the, it's the, it's not the ideas that are pre uh, um, preeminent in, in our existence, right? It's about the, the material circumstances determine what kind of ideas uh, people can have. And it's sort of that basic philosophical idea that then goes on to influence a politics, which says that like, um, it's not about in this context, right? It's not about the beliefs that people hold. It's not about like giving people the correct ideology, um, but it's about their material experience of how they live their lives and how capitalism um, constructs their existence, which um, leads them to be uh, a revolutionary class in the um, classical Marxist understanding. I mean, I think, I mean, this is this, this this perhaps isn't really a discussion for now, but one of the things I was thinking about for a lot of this was, well, how does this compare to the sort of McNary strategy, you know? Um, is this a fair description of Kautskyism, Leninism? Um, in some ways, yes. You know, obviously Kautsky did, rather uh, Lenin did have this idea of the proletariat only developing trade union consciousness if they're not helped to go further kind of thing. Um but also, in McNair's writing, there is this huge emphasis on the sort of like spontaneous um, uh, uprising of the proletariat. It's the proletariat that has all of the creative potential. It's the proletariat that has the capacity to free the rest of the, well, free all of humanity because its um, its class position is what benefit what would benefit it as a class is what would benefit humanity universally kind of thing um so that thinking is not absent from um that tradition i don't think so there might be quite a, a stark opposition being created here um one that could do with a bit of finessing and nuancing um but it is a really bold way to just start this text and then to go on and say okay um this distinction between um, mo motives and beliefs, right? Because obviously this is an essay about revolutionary motives. Um, so it really does require a very um, uh, concrete statement about what a motive is as opposed to a belief. Um, and he, he, the author almost sets up motives as being, um, in some ways, they're sort of like your both basic needs some kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You could just talk about a basic motive being the requirement to feed oneself or um, like the, the um, or the, yeah, just sort of meet those basic needs. But also it also encapsulates a kind of like 
what psycho what Freud would talk about as being like drives, you know, or like there's a certain reference to psychoanalysis here and a certain reference to desire, um, which totally escapes or is totally not covered by um, a very simplistic discussion of what do people actually believe, what are their conscious thoughts, um, know what it is that motivates people in all situations, but also pertinent to this text in revolutionary situations is not just about what they consciously believe, what their avowed ideology is. Um, there is something else going on. Yeah, I think I think what he's maybe saying about the like Leninism, Kautskyism stuff or just social democracy in general is maybe something along the lines of like when you appeal to people's interests, like, hey, wouldn't it be good if things were like this? Wouldn't it be good if, you know, maybe a good distinction would be like if food was healthier as opposed to like what he's saying, a real motivation would be like, hey, look, there's fucking no food. So now you got to act right. It's a li like when you're kind of trying to do that volunteerist thing you're creating a new ideology and you're appealing to interests whereas motives and this isn't like an accelerationist thing at all just to make it clear up out the front but he's saying that like motives cannot be they're much more base as you're saying and they can't be subsumed by ideology but then the reason that he gets into game theory here is because he's like well okay interests can motivate action right but they don't necessarily produce it so much and you also need to be thinking about, okay, let's say just by appealing to people's, you know, interests in creating this new ideology, you were to somehow create a revolutionary situation somehow, or like take power, whatever that means, right? Like he calls it this valley of transition where you're still trying to appeal to people's interests as the interests of this kind of like volunteerist body and the mass of the people themselves are like rapidly deconverging or whatever, right? And so he's saying like, it would be cool if that worked, but he's going to get into here the game theory behind why that can't work and why the only thing that will produce a long lasting and permanent revolution is something that appeals to people's base motives. Um, and it's an, it, we'll get to it in the end, but it's an interesting course of action that he proposes. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. we'll see. Let's 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 back up a little bit, though, because we should talk a little bit about what he calls fatalists. So he counterposes these to um, volunteerists and the fatalists are like our people. <laughs> They're your Maddox, right? They're your um, panic hooks, I guess, who we actually haven't read for the show, which I find it fucking insane that we still haven't done that yet. Um, he basically says that these are people who believe in spontaneity all the way down. They're like allergic to any kind of action on the behalf of a so-called vanguard to the point that they just... They go, we have no idea what causes a revolutionary situation. Don't even ask. And he's like, well, I think we should be asking because we want to create one of these situations, right? Um, but yeah, he basically says, whereas volunteerists overstate the importance of act activists, fatalists way understate it, right? Um, and they don't go so far as the last group that he talks about, which is the nihilist communists, which sound incredibly funny and pretentious. The people he cite call themselves Monsieur Dupont, which is like, oh my God, that's the most eye rolling thing ever. But these are basically people who take the fatalism approach a step further and say, not only is it spontaneity all the way down, don't you fucking try to organize and be an activist because I'm going to come for you and I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> we should, even in revolutionary situations, we should actively hamper the work done by revolutionary organizations. So we have a word for these people, Dan. <laughs> these people are called spooks. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's a joke. If Mr. DuPont is listening, I don't actually think he's spooks unless you are, which I think is very funny. But yeah, he's he's basically saying he's not so much saying that we need to come to a you know third way in between the voluntarists and the fatalists, but he's basically saying you know like clearly there's something else going on here that motivates proletarian action. One of my favorite things about Mike Duncan's revolutions is whenever on the eve of every revolution he goes through and he like reads letters between either socialist activists or like you know conservative members of parliament or whatever the day before something happens and they're always 100% of the time like well everything's fine don't you know go to bed <laughs> nothing's going to happen tomorrow on like Bastille day or something <laughs> like that so yeah kind of ties into here where he's basically i don't know saying you know activists do need to be doing something but what can they do to push this to tap into people's motives as opposed to their interests um yeah yeah, and I think um, the other thing that's worth saying maybe at this point is that he, what the author is saying is that, um, well, one, it's really refreshing to have, because um, this is the problem we usually have when we come up against the Council Communists, say, it's like, okay, what do we do? Do we just wait yeah. for the insurrection? Kind of thing? I'll, I'll go form a council <laughs> you, with my Usually job. our response to Paul Matic is like, yes, we love this, but also like, <laughs> uh, what do we do? And um, yeah, further to what you were just saying, sort of like ex explaining that distinction, uh, between the fatalists and the voluntarists um what they are saying in this text is that what you have to do is work with people's motives uh whatever they are basically like they're almost given in some respects um and so when you go out and organize it's almost like totally uh, totally counter to the sort of pastoral or pedagogical approach which is like here is what you should think or here is what you should believe, or here is what your sort of like drives or motivations should be. Um, this approach is no, okay, we're going to assess what your motivations are um, and work with those. And actually, there's um, maybe we're skipping ahead quite a long way in the text, but I'm, it's relevant to say it now. And I usually, when I plan to say things later, I usually just forget about them. So uh, it's we might, might as well say now, one of the things that's explained later in this text is that... Um, two different groups of proletarians or two individual proletarians can have the same motives but take different courses of action to satisfy those things so there is still room for, for maneuver in like um providing people with a certain approach that works toward meeting their uh motivations whatever their basic drives and desires are um there is still work to be done i suppose um, but also you do need to work with the material that you have rather than going out into a world and thinking you can uh, make it <laughs> uh, in some kind of idealist fashion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll get into it again as well in, the, in a bit. We keep saying that, but he does distinguish between two types of intervention. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I thought, so the two types of intervention are vanguardist intervention and adventurist and, uh, intervention. And I was like, Oh, those sound like he's just going to wind up criticizing both, both of them just yeah. based off their names. But then he's like, adventurism is good. And I was yes. like, oh, okay. Let's go. Oh, we are dealing with the wet left comms that we know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let's go. <laughs> doesn't fall so far from the tree. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. So then, then in this, he, he basically tries to answer the question of, well, why the proletariat, right? From a game theoretical perspective, why is it that we're placing all of our hopes on the proletariat and not just like vanguard people to do it for us? And so he basically says that, you know, 
the like typical Marxist line of that communism, the communist revolution is only possible by what he calls interest-based action um, by those who capitalism has rendered propertyless, right? Which is obvious. I feel like everybody and their dog would agree with that. But then he basically goes down and he says that if we expect people to act in their self-interest, right, rationally or whatever, whatever that might mean, whatever its bourgeois connotations are, who can we look to in the world to expect to bring about a classless society? And he basically says, well, if you look at the bourgeoisie, if they act in their self-interest, it's going to be chaotic and conservative and competitive, right? It's just going to create chaos and it's going to create more accumulation and things are only going to get worse. But if you look at the prole and if you looked at, you know, them acting in their own self-interest, proletariat self-interest is unifying, he says, and progressive, right? And it's the only class that actually, when they say that their interests are universal, they actually are, right? You know, and this is stuff that we've talked about a million times before. This is kind of Marxism 101 stuff, but I think it's important to kind of frame what he's talking about here. And when I said earlier that he's building like a logical argument here, it's important to point this out, right? Because otherwise you could just be like, I don't know, one of the utopian people from back in the day and just be like, well, why doesn't Jeff Bezos just take all of his money and, you know, and do socialism for us and end hunger? It's like, well, a million reasons, but because everybody's acting in their own interest. And I think that that's kind of like, for me, that's kind of as close to a theory of human nature as I feel like I need. You know what I mean? It's because he gets into talking about why self-interest can actually be quite cooperative in like really a beautiful way. And if you actually like emancipate people, self-interest, communism is breaking down self-interest and the collective interest into one thing. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I buy it. Those yeah. are like the the bases for his argument, but I buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what this this text this text does wonderfully is uh, say again like um, explain uh, Marx and Engels' approach to this, which is basically the one you've just described, although um, he basically says that like what Marx and Engels have is an approach to politics which believes in people, in the proletariat's expression of its interest. Like it's 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 act, revolutionary action based on um, pursuing interest. Um, the author also says this is not, it, throughout this text, what they're not really interested in is um, self-interest. They're not interested in the action of... Uh, any individual that's why it's a question between motives in general and rev revolutionary motivations in particular because i think for this author a revolutionary motive is one which is collective rather than driven by some kind of self-interest and a lot of this text is dedicated to, to explaining how a self-interest can become a collective revolutionary interest um but in this instance yeah they're, they're saying that like th this is the this is the vision of the proletariat and its political uh, mission that, that it was given in some ways by Marx and Engels to like um, liberate um, liberate all humanity predicated on its interest being a universal interest. There's also in this an interesting explanation of like or definition of a, a Marx's attitude toward the state and um the text describes quite succinctly the state as being a, a usurping of the common interest. So like the state comes along and says X, Y, and Z things are in, are the universal interest of everyone when actually, no, they're not. They're the universal interest of uh, the, the bourgeoisie, the, the current state being the representatives of the bourgeois class kind of thing, which sort of then leads into, but the proletariat is the only class in the position to 
um, uh, to liberate humanity universally, I guess. Because <laughs> that's a small thing. Yeah, oh, I yeah, love yeah, that. Yeah. I love it. The world historical mission. So it's just like, oh, okay, just that. Oh, yeah. yes, by the way. Um, okay, so yeah, I guess now we can kind of start talking about some of the game theory stuff. Mm. I, don't, I don't really know how to tackle a lot of this. Um, he, he starts out first, I guess, by talking about like a relatively like kind of bourgeois game theory person, somebody mm. named Olson. Was it Mancore Olson or something mm-hmm. like that? Um, who he basically says, you need to read as a Marxist. It's like foundational. But this guy is like explicitly arguing against, or attempting to argue against Marx, which is very funny. He's like, was this a guy who was like a liberal reformer in so like LBJ's? Yeah, like, yeah, like mid-century or earlier kind of like. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which, which in some ways goes to explaining why he comes up with the conclusions that he does. But, oh, know. totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, he basically just says that class-oriented, class-oriented, orientated, oriented action, um, he just says it doesn't occur if people act rationally, right? Like, you can't get to this class-for-itself distinction if people are acting rationally. And he gives a couple of examples for why this is, or a couple of reasons. He basically just says that when a group gets large enough, like an institution or whatever that's supposedly representing the class interest. Um, if it gets too large or heterogeneous enough, it just the interests between the individual of the class and the class it's the class institution of itself completely diverge. And he's, he he kind of says that like one of the reasons for this is that when you're a part of one of these institutions, your individual contribution might be so small as to seem negligible on the abstract like emergent totality of the whole. Um, and so you kind of get this, like, what he calls, like, a free, free rider, which is like, oh, my God, he's, like, clearly just fucking talking about welfare here. It's just like, God damn it, where people are just kind of, like, not actually doing what they should. And it becomes difficult for people to really care. Um, I'm in the union because I sort of support it, but also the, yeah. the benefits are so nominal that if it comes down to a balancing of my rational interest, is it worth my doing a huge amount of work toward maintaining this relatively small personal benefit? Um and so I sort of become a free rider and I just take the small benefit, but without actually like contributing to the, to the, the work of maintaining a thing. And then which leads to like institutional, kind of thing. yeah, which leads to like an institutional class of itself that has to put things together and it ossifies. I totally see this with like my role in my union. It's like we had a restructure get announced like, fuck, like, I don't know, half a year ago at this point, And it's still going on. Um, and before that, like there was kind of like a period of a couple of years where nothing was happening. And we like maybe we were probably over that period, like losing a couple members every month, probably. And now it's like, you know, a bunch of people are fucking joining all because they're worried about their jobs. And at first that kind of pissed me off. But then I was like, well, why would you? Why would you pay the fucking 15 bucks a month if you're not going to get anything? Right. And the like where I work, there are a bunch of different departments. And like some of them are more operational, some of them are more administrative. And generally we represented more operational people because the uh, likelihood of a legal problem, a legal issue arising was greater for them in their day-to-day job. So we just had more representation there, right? And it's kind of like exactly what he's saying here. It's like, how are you going to organize people? You're kind of offering them like maybe something will happen, maybe it won't. You should just be in the union just because. 
And so his political conclusions are kind of hilarious. He's like, mandate people being in unions, get the federal government to endorse uh, strike action. It's like, ah, yes, that thing that the federal government will totally do, of course. But yeah, you're totally right. This is just totally seeped in the ideology of like the, you know, liberal reformists of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we have to have these institutions because we're sort of trying to build a form of, I guess guess it's like Keynesianism or whatever, like we're trying to... um, in the language of this text, in the language of game theory, we're trying to balance interests, right? Um, we have these two interests, and um, if if both sides of this divide, the sort of like the employer and employee, if they're not both going to make the decisions that benefit this rational equilibrium, we're going to have to take decisions to maintain that rational equilibrium on their behalf, or the state is, kind of thing. Um, the text likens this um, Ollison's like, approach to being like, Trotskyist or Leninist in some respects kind of thing of being the pastoral it, this is the pastoral approach kind of thing from a from a sort of liberal soft social democratic like reformer perspective kind of thing um yeah I mean this 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 whole um there's interesting things to be said about this this text's approach to game theory because like it it criticizes some of the fundamental assumptions of these sort of game theoretic models, but also acknowledges that there is some truth in the dilemmas that it proposes. Just like the one you were saying, right? There is some truth in this idea that um, if you if you can't see a benefit that's going to extract from uh, your ongoing membership of a trade union, then it, in this scenario where what you're focusing on is your like personal rational self-interest maybe it's not worth continuing that organization that sort of being a member of that organization kind of thing um i mean it's all sort of like all sort of stems from it begins with um a discussion of the sort of prisoner's dilemma uh uh scenario which i don't think i've ever understood until sort of reading it here but like yeah (laughs) but just the this idea that you can create um a logical uh, scenario, I suppose, whereby if people act in their personal interest, that doesn't lead to the collective interest. Like the collective interest and the personal interest are inextricably, um, are, are not linked, kind of thing. Um, and it's sort of it's it's that thought which then permeates all of these thinkers. And it's sort of like it's in this guy Olderson, but it's also in like the analytic Marxists and people like Adam. Przeworski, this kind of thing, who like um, take a similar approach to analyzing um, uh, electoral prop- um, uh, the possibilities for electoral success of left wing parties, and just say that there aren't enough voters for left wing parties to be able to institute socialism. So they're always going to have to collaborate with um, rightist or centrist forces, and it's always going to sort of dilute. Um, uh, it's always going to lead to a diluting of their sort of political aspirations and an end to their being re- they their being having sort of revolutionary amb- ambitions for the um, for those political parties kind of thing. Um, there's a few, well, a, f- a few of the criticisms that I wanted to bring up was that like one, all of these models usually talk about unions and they talk about political parties. They talk about recognized institutions that 
like social democracy or uh, capitalist democracy is sort of willing to recognize kind of thing. Um, and what the author of this text says, well, they're really, they're wrong to focus on those as being the only possible revolutionary organizations or forms of expression of um, revolutionary class action i suppose they're the, they're suggesting that the only place whereby these motivations these self-interested motivations or collective interests are going to express themselves are in these kind of institutions and then the author provides a whole mostly like riots and insurrectionary moments and these kind of things um things that you actually always see in revolutions right like um there are all these there was loads of other key revolutionary phenomena that are just like fall totally without outside of the purview of um of this kind of like game theoretic approach to playing these things out um and also there's just like a it's a very kind of like neoclassical understanding of what an interest is right they're all financial and they're all personal interest um and what the author is saying here is that there are so many different ways of analyzing uh, what someone's interests might be what someone's desires might be what someone's motivations might be particularly when they're caught up in a sort of collective revolutionary moment um which are also just not covered by this sort of like form of game theoretic thinking um but that all said the author still recognizes that some of these phenomena are um issues that do have to be confronted and can't be like um ignored entirely i suppose well i yeah totally i think i i think the difference though is like accepting these assumptions about the difference between the serial and collective interests and about institutions, maybe institutional drift or whatever, between just accepting them on one hand and then just throwing up your hands and being like, well, there is nothing we can do mm -hmm. on the other hand. Mm -hmm. Because he basically says that's what like Przeworski and a bunch of these people do. I mean, Olson takes these conclusions and it's like, I'm going to be a Democrat, right? Whereas Przeworski, he and this other guy, Wallerstein, he says, take these ideas and just become volunteerists. Right. And so they basically just say, well, OK, so somebody needs to come along and teach the correct ideology and appeal to people's interests, which are right. Trust me, they're right, because I know they're right. I've spent 50 years studying this stuff, so I know what's better than you. Right. As opposed to like really understanding what makes people tick, because it is a percentage game. Right. It's like if you're going around trying to organize people by being like, let me explain value theory to you and I can, you know, fundamentally mathematically prove why capitalism is failing and why it would be in your best interest to move past it. 2% of people are going to listen to you, probably less. But like, if you actually look to where the struggle is or whatever, and look to see where people are being motivated by their motivations and not just by pure ideology, you're going to have a like, um, well, in theory, that's where you're going to be able to help push things towards a revolutionary scenario uh, better or whatever. Only other thing I'll say is I think the prisoner's dilemma stuff is really interesting because it totally, like all thought experiments, fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Under communism, we're just banning thought experiments. <laughs> thought experiments are the stupidest fucking thing ever. Like, basically, the prisoner's dilemma, like all thought experiments, is a thought experiment designed, at least to me, to have a very specific conclusion and to then point to that conclusion and be like, look at these idiots. They're not doing what they should, right? Not doing what a rational human would. The prisoner's dilemma, it's like, you know, two convicts schmucks have been like arrested. And if they throw their like comrade under the bus, they'll get less time. But yeah, if the other person does it too, huh? Oh yeah. They yeah, go yeah, free. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. 
if they yeah, collaborate they with the authorities they go free but um, if the other person does it as well then they both wind up going to jail whereas like if one does it yeah yeah, yeah basically look ne- it up but if neither of them collaborate then they both go to jail for a shortest the shortest period of time is they both don't collaborate so therefore they have a collective oh, interest yeah. So yeah, the, coll- thinking... the collective interest scenario is they go to prison for like one year, mm. but the, the rational self-interested scenario is they betray their comrade and then go to prison for no years. Yeah. So I think that's the outcome. Yeah, yeah. For some time. reason, I was thinking of collaboration between each other, not with the yeah, cops. But no, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's, he's saying that actually... Thought banned. Thought experiments banned. <laughs> what he's saying is that actually what you need to do is recognize that proletarians in revolutionary situations really think these things through. And most importantly, they use prior history to determine action, right? And he's saying that this bullshit thought experiment is just floating in the void with no history around it at all, right? And he's saying what actually happens if you run the prisoner dilemma multiple times with people, what people will actually do is what he calls, uh, what does he call it? Like a tit for tat tit kind of thing, tat. right? Yeah. Where he's like, people will at first always do the cooperative thing, cooperating with each other, not cooperating with the cops, see what the other person does. And if the other person does the correct thing with the good thing, collaborate with them, then they'll keep doing it. But if they don't, then they'll just say, fuck it. Okay. I'm going to like throw this other schmuck under the bus. Right. And he's saying that that's actually how humans act. They will try to do the altruistic good thing first because it makes more sense, even in this bullshit thought experiment, to collaborate. But if it doesn't work, then they'll just go, okay, then they'll throw up their hands, right? Um, I mean, I I think even in this case, the tit for tat scenario isn't the sort of like, um, isn't the rational thing. It's, 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 um, It's not the... It's starting out from a position of not having any information and then you engage with the world, work out what inf- feedback you get and then base your your experience on prior um, prior experience. So like this is just to say that, that the tit for that thing isn't an altruistic asp- appro- approach True. kind of thing. It's yeah. almost like a, a rational approach. Um, and the fundamental flaw of the prisoner's dilemma is it's just not historical. And in some ways it's idealistic. It's like people's approach to a rational um satisfying their rational self-interest is not a hypothetical what do i want for the future uh, which is the kind of like neoclassical economics approach to like how do people satisfy getting what they want how do they make the materially best investment with their resources blah 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 to maximize their own personal outcomes kind of thing we're not homo economicus we're not all individual we're not like biologically capitalists kind of thing um, i am that's just because i'm on that grind you know me yeah <laughs> <laughs> i only say that because the author then goes on to say all that being said there is also an altruistic aspect to human behavior like human beings at least some of them do take an altruistic approach to these kind of interactions regardless of um any sort of like rational thinking which in some ways speaks to their sort of like more base motivations and drives and that kind of thing there is an altruistic aspect to um human behavior i suppose yeah and that's a really good point because he's like think whatever you want about human nature it doesn't have to be altruistic or it can be altruistic. This is how the prisoner dilemma is going to go through this like unfolding of the world and sequencing before you. And he, and what you're saying is really interesting because he's like, look at riots, right? Look at, say, an unarmed black man is killed in Ferguson and 
they burn the fucking city down. Same thing happens in, where was it, Minneapolis, one of the Twin Cities or something. They go to and burn down the fucking uh, cop precinct. He's like, this happens for two reasons. One is altruism because people, it's just like, A, you know, fuck, what if that happened to me? Or B, damn, that really sucks, you know? I really want to like revenge this person. And he says that kind of gets into the second reason, which is spite, right? Like people yeah. will operate in riots just purely out of fucking spite. And he's like, and, <laughs> and that's good. <laughs> and spite is an altruistic approach. Yeah. Right? Like, like, <laughs> I was like, let's go. Uh, there has been a collective offense and there has to, that, that collective offense has to be like, like punishment has to be given for that, that thing. So like people can experience something, some a collective insult. Um, and it's predicated on a mutual altruism or a mutual sort of like care for one another. It just expresses itself as a sort of like, let's burn down the police precinct. Kind of thing. Yeah, hell yeah. It's and it's also fun. And then he was also really like, it's also, it's also a percentage game too, because he was like, after a certain time, the reason riots die down is because people go, well, it's no longer in my self-interest, whether that's altruism, spite, or just because they want cops to know you can't go around killing people including them right they'll just die down because eventually like that collective interest will diverge from the self-interest and people go eh, i'm just gonna i'm gonna go home now this is i'm either tired of it or they're sending in the national guard and i'm just gonna you know fuck off um but it is also a percentage game he's like some people will just stay because beating the shit out of cops is like reason enough for them to be out on the streets mm. um um so yeah i mean that's, i feel like what we've just described in some ways is how this text talks about the transition from like a self-interest to a collective one like people can enter into a scenario like this with a particular collection of self-interests and through engaging the sort of like scenario with the riot or what have you um create a uh sort of like a moment of collective um uh engagement in a political project i suppose there's an interesting quoting from a text by john paul sartre in this um where sartre so it talks about like the um the the beginnings of the French Revolution, the and what led up to the storming of the Bastille. Um and he talks he talks about how the initial arming of the people was this kind of like self um sort of like a set a sort of a personal interest act right like everybody else is arming themselves i better not be the person who is left unarmed at the end of this scenario um and it was only when the army stepped in to prevent this arming of the people that the people then suddenly realized their collective interest okay now we're going to have to use these arms and be a totality be a sort of like collective revolutionary mass find our revolutionary motivation in all of this rather than our self-interested motivation um and that leads to the sort of the building of barricades and the storming of the Bastille and the fortifying of the workers' district of Paris, kind of thing. Um, which, yeah, which is which pure is a sort of motive. A, which is again the sort of tip, some sort of version of this tip attack thing, which is like we're going to engage the world and then we're going to develop what happens, rather than we're going to take some kind of abstract game theoretic uh, thought process, which is going to explain why we storm the Bastille. Um, no, nobody planned to have that be the outcome. The collective revolutionary mass decided upon that um through an expression of their collectivity i think would be what's being described here i like when he's talking about he has a bit of a zinger when he talks about bourgeois interests and he's like bourgeois interest i call that interest rate it's like, <laughs> 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 like pretty good pretty clever pretty clever um yeah. So yeah, I mean, then we get to the point where he talks about well, what does this all mean? We've studied all of this. What does this mean? 
uh, we're reminded that this man is a left com. This man is, uh, mm-hmm. I guess he's a communizer, right? And he gets into talking about what this means for for communization and the world revolution of the pro- pro- proletariat. proletariat. <laughs> he basically says, what if instead of thinking about revolutions as something to be guided and something to be voluntaristically taught and led, which leads you inevitably to this, what does he call it? Something gap? Uh, just something valley, valley of transition, where inevitably institutional and serial interests are going to split, right? People are going to, eh, I'm going to go home after the riot or, you know, I'm no longer interested in what this, this whole revolution thing, it's kind of a pain in the ass. I'm just going to go home. My self-interest is now, you know, not fighting in the Red Army because that sucks and just going home, right? Um and so he says, if we think about the revolution as what he calls the self-organization of the proletariat, then what you really need to study isn't the like ideology of these movements and the interests of these movements. It's the fundamental determinants and fundamental determinants that lead to overcoming the split between serial and collective interests, right? And he says there are a bunch of different determinants here. And this stuff I found really, really fascinating. This reminded me actually a lot of like the cybernetics stuff that we've read. Um where he was like, you need to be thinking about the size of movements, because again, like the bigger a movement is, the harder it is to maintain that coherence between collective and serial interest. You need to be thinking about the hetero- heterogeneity. Um, you need to be thinking about, is this a defensive struggle? Is this an offensive struggle? Are people bringing the fight to the state? Is the state bringing the fight to them? Like, you know, the Bastille or whatever. But it's f- funny, though, because the Bastille, Storming of the Bastille was like both. It, it, it fluctuated, which is why he's like, you need to constantly be thinking about these things. Because at first it was like, fuck, let's get all of these weapons just in case, defensive. Then it was like the state showed up. And then all of a sudden the like governor of the Bastille's head is like being tossed around the streets of Paris, right? It's like, oh, wow. Okay, this thing's escalated very quickly here. But he's like, and you also need to think about are people fighting for their survival or are they fighting for their well-being? Because it's easy to think about these revolutionary motives as just purely, I want to survive, so I'm going to do this, Right. It's every revolution ever when all of the women get together and, you know, take all of the bread from the bakers or storm the grain depositories where people are hoarding it, capitalists are hoarding it to feed everybody, right? Or, like, you can also think about motives as people just want increased well-being. But he's like, that is a determinant in how quickly or when the split is going to come. Because he's like, he doesn't actually really think of counter-revolution necessarily as like Thermidor or as like, hmm. you know, the, um, what's the guy's name who was in charge of the people who crushed the communes, the uh, communards. I forgot that guy's name. Anyway, him coming from Versailles yeah. to go crush like the communards. He, he's kind of discussing that is, that is, uh, counter-revolution, but he's also saying that like counter-revolution here is portrayed as like this split between serial and collective interests. And because he's a communizer, he's like, as soon as that happens, think it's over basically mm-hmm. revolution's done it's going to be terror from then on out because you're going to have to force people to perform as the proletariat should either through force in terms of violence or through like re-education for your ideology and he's like at that point you're fucked the revolution's done yeah and the really interesting like um game theoretic approach to this uh aspects of counter-revolution. It's interesting you frame counter-revolution as being the slippage back into serial interests as opposed to collective ones, which is true. Um, But then also, there were ways in which I was thinking about it in terms of the counter-revolution is created by sort of like vanguards who want to maintain 
the collective interest and they sort of take action to sure. try and maintain collective in- expressions of collective interest. Mm. Um, and the sort of game theoretic aspect to that is that like the way the author of this text describes it quite often a revolutionary vanguard can try and implement certain policies or enforce certain things that are intended to maintain revolutions as expressions of collective interest but actually by that very desire to do that they create the scenarios whereby there's this slippage back into um serial i.e personal self-interest so like the 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 really dangerous body in this is always the most fervent revolutionaries who want to maintain the revolutionary scenario because actually what they're going to do is create this feedback where they um drive more the development of serial interests um and there's some interesting scenarios which i can't remember fully enough to explain here but like discussions of how the soviet union worked whereby workers were empowered in such a way that actually it led them to be like well i don't need to like participate in this collective effort of building this economy because like i can just like shirk work and not show up on time and there really isn't any punishment for me kind of thing um so there can be these negative feedback loops that happen yeah that that little bit on the soviet union i did find really interesting to me that seemed to be a bit more of an indictment of stalinism than of like a vanguard actively trying to continue the revolution it seemed more like the vanguard tried to like crush <laughs> when you i mean when, when you were saying before that the counter-revolution for this text isn't the thermidor i just wanted to say no it's stalin <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> him and mcnair not quite true it's not quite true. <laughs> it's more it's more complicated than you want than that yeah that. yeah yeah um so just to get us into this last bit about what what it is that can be done the kind of communization like, communization it is just <laughs> do communization the the ever-present question in uh leftist circles what is it dan that we can do i'll quote him a bit here he says um in revolutions people really do consider their options and weigh the risks and if a revolution succeeds it will be by working with this motivated reason and not against it the best way to do this is to produce as quickly as possible the material benefits that's kind of like the key here to produce as quickly as possible the material benefits that other failed revolutions decided to pend until some future date. One does not win the civil war against reactionary forces and then make communism. One wins the civil war by making communism, by giving proletarians something to fight for. The successful revolution unfolds as a series of enchained, mutually ramifying communist measures that in their totality weaken and eventually vanquish class society through a process of communization. So that kicks ass. But one thing I will say is that while I was reading this, I was kind of just like, everyone agrees with that. You know mm. what I mean? It's like everybody would agree with that because, and this is, this is kind of like, I, I'm, I kind I buy it, but it's also like, that means so much and so little at the same time. I totally understand what he's saying about producing material benefits for people and this whole communist measures thing I think is awesome, but it's like Leninists, councilists anarchists everybody would say that you basically need to do communism day one but it's like the question then becomes well what does that mean what is actually doing communism because like for leninist right it would be like uh take control right of the state maybe and then institute a new version of the state in which it's in america it's just like the house of representatives and it's one person one vote and it's like a mass representative democratic republic right um councilists like and they'd be like and that's it that 
combined with like social ownership of the means of production, that's doing communism. And we can just do that day one. Councilists would be like, well, no, it's a bit more about the economics. It's about like labor tokens or something like that, right? Or actually setting up councils. Um, anarchists would probably just be like, just federate everything, man. And so it's a little bit like the answer is communization. It's like, well, yeah, I could have told you that. You know what I mean? Um, having said that, I buy it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is an extent to which there are, maybe there aren't certain people that would, certain revolutionaries that would uh, deliberately expound this approach, right? Um, but there are um, post-revolutionary moments whereby the communism is, is a promise for the future. And actually what we're going to do is, uh, i.e. like nationalization will be socialism and we'll just take it under the auspices of the state, you know? And actually what we'll still be doing is, using money and creating value and creating products which are sold on global markets but our state will ostensibly be a socialist one will claim to be the dictatorship of the proletariat and promise to be installing socialism somehow but like what's it's already failed there kind of thing so maybe or maybe it's like a bukharanist uh retreat maybe we shouldn't blame bukharan i quite like bukharan but like a a, <laughs> a a sort of a retreat back to the nep you know um it, it, that's sort of like a betrayal of the of communization i guess i mean going back to what i said at the beginning where you get the best explanation of what kind of communization is here it's sort of like it is that kind of like we need to um maintain those moments of collective action which are collective and not serial kind of thing and we need to like the process of making communism is a whole series of those kind of like uh collective rather than individual motivated revolutionary moments and that's still quite an abstract definition and you were you were obviously right to query like okay who doesn't agree with that and how do we actually do that um but i at least understand what they're trying to say more um more than i did before but more than that if you are like a systems theory kind of person you can go back to all of those factors that you just described and say okay we're going to assess this moment. What is the size of the collective that is doing this collective thing? How do we maximize that sort of like collective um, approach? Okay, maybe we need to take a um, a leaf out of the fundamental principles of communist production and distribution approach and say, okay, here's a manageable collective. There has been this um, this. Uh, reappropriation of this factory and these people are standing by to work it why would we dictate from above what they're supposed to produce and in what way rather is there a way that we can facilitate their collectivity surviving as an active uh example of communization communism in process and how can we facilitate that on a broader scale, i.e. by linking that collective to other collectives kind of thing? Or you could go down that list of other things and sort of assess this kind of situation. Um, how do we we recognize this is a heterogeneous group? Here is another heterogeneous group. How can we like facilitate their interaction without crushing their individuality as collectives? That makes sense. So there is, there is, uh, yeah. there is material in this that can feed into our systems theory thinking. Um, and that can give us some kind of rational approach to these scenarios that isn't just the fatalist sort of like, just wait, wait and wait, let the revolution, yeah. let the masses do their thing kind of thing. For sure. And I, I totally see labor tokens in that fundamental principles system as a communist measure as like mainly like 
one of the biggest communist measures, right? It's mm -hmm. like when you're talking about what can we do to facilitate that collectivity, it's like give people the actual accounting tools and the processes by which they would institute collectivity permanently, right? Mm -hmm. Like that. It's so funny to me because it's like the communization people, it seems like they just, what they're looking for is just a thought out system of labor tokens. And like they, they criticized it a little bit in EndNotes 1. I haven't read any of the other EndNotes to know really what they're on about, but like it's it seems like that's what they're looking for when they're like on day one of the revolution you need to do something to abolish abolish value it's like it is kind of right there like i don't know i know mm -hmm. some of the critiques that dove was making in endnotes one i kind of see where he's coming from but it seems like he was talking about maybe a different accounting scheme than the one we're familiar with i will say dove in this actually he's quoted once and he actually comes across much more like uh I don't want to say rational because that's kind of like a prick thing to say but like a lot more like i understood what he was talking about because in EndNotes 1, he made it seem like you need to have communism the second the revolution happens. And if you don't, bad, you're never going to get communism. But in his quote here, he's like, yeah, you just need to be doing different things that lead towards collectivity. And that will take time. But as long as each of those things is leading towards communism, that's communization. I was like, oh, okay. That's what communization is. Communization just gets memed all the time about being like, you know, if it doesn't happen on the first second, it's not going to happen. But like, I get it. I what we said at the beginning. Okay, I'm beginning to understand this whole communization thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's not like it's not as magical thinking as we might initially think it is, kind of thing. Yeah, they know they know what they mean. Do we agree with it? We don't know, but like <laughs> we don't it's, know. It's, 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 it's consistent, you know. I will it's say, well, <laughs> I can't, I can't, um, I can't remember what he says, but as a sort of like footnote, I will say that um, Dove does reference the group of international communists explicitly in the eclipse and reemergence of the communist movement but mm. i can't remember and in a critical way but i can't remember what his criticism is so wait I eclipse and reemergence yeah or... is that what it's called He's, there's a... when insurrections die uh no 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 there's another book there's another book oh, i think okay. it's called the eclipse and reemergence of the communist movement okay we'll figure out what he's um, got to say anyway yeah okay maybe uh, you listeners go and, go and have a look at that yeah tell us <laughs> or maybe we'll read that next week oh god <laughs> oh no <laughs> okay um okay <laughs> last thing and this is the thing that kicks the most ass out of uh -huh. what we read, Dan. Growing Adventurism. Beans. Oh, <laughs> Growing <okay>. beans. <laughs> that is the ultimate communist measure. The ultimate communist. You remember how last week or last episode I was like, I saved 100 beans because I just like didn't pick them fast enough. Mm -hmm. I also, my like fucking Sainsbury's bag full of beans that I was going to eat, I also didn't wind up eating. So now I have like 200 beans <laughs> that I'll have to be planting. Uh, come fall, so mm. there's going to be Jack knows all the best fix. ways to dry beans. <laughs> I, do. I mean, you could rehydrate them, them, surely. You could rehydrate them. Yeah. You can. But are you going to do that? Am I going to do that? <laughs> I'll probably try it for some of them. I mean, why not? Okay. That's how you store beans, I guess. Okay. It's a seed so. store. This is your seed store. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. That's my Hopefully role. Hopefully, you're going to share it, and uh, yeah, yeah. yeah why not? Not going to be petted bourgeois seed magnate. The post-revolutionary <laughs> counter-revolution. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, no, Dan, not growing beans. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Adventurism. Okay. This, uh, as we said at the beginning, I was expecting him to criticize when he brings up the word adventurism, but he means it in a much different way than I've ever come across the word adventurism. I've always taken adventurism to be like, I'm going to go fight for, I don't know, 
like some socialist group in Central America. I'm a white guy in Brooklyn and I'm going to go down there and because it sounds fun and lead the global revolution. And you go down there and you just get food poisoning and then you have to like take the next train back or whatever. You know what I mean? That's what I always thought adventurism is. Mm, yeah, He's talking yeah. about adventurism here as being like there will always be a group of people who are willing to do not more than the average proletariat, but perhaps willing to dedicate themselves entirely to the revolution, even if it fails, in a way that the average rational person absolutely should not be expected to act. And he says that these people, instead of being like aloof uh, pedagogical volunteerists or whatever, need to actually be engaging in the movement in such a way that they're searching out the best ways to implement these communist measures, whether that be getting a bunch of people to expropriate food from a store during a riot or doing labor tokens, I guess. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> However, that would happen. <laughs> um, and that's what you need to be doing. Um, and it's incredibly cool. It's the coolest answer to the question that we've come across. Like, what should you be doing? As opposed to like the Hal Draper, like, mm, just start a newspaper. Which, you know, if you're going to start a newspaper, we started a podcast. That's all we do. Um, but yeah, I, th I thought it was cool. Whether or not he's giving you the answers of how these adventurist cliques communicate and coordinate and organize. Eh, this is a question for another time. But I think the idea of you need to always be orienting your actions towards these so-called communist measures, worse, worse guiding lights, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it really does answer that question of what, what do the Council of Communists do between insurrectionary moments, you know? And how can we use the scientific analytic analysis of this text or work like this? Um, how could you use that to influence what your actions are? what your adventurist actions are um between the revolutions i guess and there is a there is a section in the very first the very in the introduction to this where he's he he does say exactly that that like um there are always going to be people that are out there sort of try, trying things or like trying to inspire um revolution in people collective moments of collectivity in people kind of thing uh so uh go be an adventurist hell yeah have fun hell yeah have fun do we buy it do we buy this i mean like i said i was so stoked after i finished reading this um it put a lot i don't know man it's all fucking doom and gloom isn't it and it's like somebody actually being like no it's actually cool and good to just be like stoked about you know doing a revolution or whatever if you're serious about it and like your heart's in the right place like i don't know no, nobody ever uses this word on the communist left because they don't want to be lame or whatever but it's like as long as you have empathy like you'll be good I, yeah, I don't know. I, do I buy the communization stuff? I don't know. I'm getting there. I mean, I mean, it, um, it's a description. I don't know. It's a description of a pro um, communism, a communist revolution. This in this text: the communist revolution has never happened, right? Like exactly. How are you supposed to know what it's supposed to look like? Um, I, I really appreciate the um, effort at an analytic approach to, um thinking out what it is that motivates collectives in a revolutionary moment. I think there's really fundamentally fundamental things. It's really useful work that somebody's doing and I'm very grateful. And it's um uh some a foundation on which to build. 
certainly. So um, I buy that aspect of it. Um, and I, I, I am inspired. Um, it sort of like rises my passions, I suppose, this uh, description of a revolutionary process that is um, and a kind of like accretion of uh, communist moments. Is that the phrase that they use? Uh, I don't remember that one. I don't know. No. <laughs> Maybe. Well, no, you, you keep saying, you keep saying something. Accumulation? No, 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 no. Accretion? There's, no, no, forget accretion. But like, okay. Communist uh, measures. Well, I mean, it's measures. That's the phrase that I'm looking for, because <laughs> okay. we haven't actually explained that. You just started using it, which is... It's a measure. I, I, it's, yeah, 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 it's a thing. Anyway. <laughs> Communization. It's a. It's it's lots of communist measures piled on top of each other. It's an accretion of communist measures. <laughs> yes. And do the communist measures. I will say this one. Is I'm impassioned written... by this geological metaphor that I'm trying to weave. <laughs> this endnotes essay is written in a way that it's harder to disagree with than mm. the endnotes one stuff. Mm. Maybe it's, because one it's stuff. written by an individual rather than a collective. Yeah, but also like just do the revolution. And if you don't do the revolution, the revolution won't happen versus like, well, well why don't, why don't those things happen? Uh -huh. And also you need to be doing things to move the class struggle forward. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, uh, I dig it. And I think this was very elucidating for what this whole communization thing actually is. Um, and I do think if more people gave it, here's the thing, you can find something cool and fun and agree with a lot of it and not go out and call yourself whatever that thing is trying to convince you to be, right? Like, I'm not going to walk out of here or go to my next union meeting and be like, um, actually, I'm a communizer now, so <laughs> we can't be talking to HR. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think this is cool. And I'm not going to walk around calling myself a communizer, just like I'm not going to walk around calling myself a Leninist. So. Because cool nobody shit. knows what that means. Oh, but maybe if you're talking to anarchists. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no, I'm a cool You want to make the anarchist like you. Yeah, 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 exactly. There you go. <laughs> I read endnotes. <laughs> Good. Uh, dear. Good. You seen those new well, Tyranid models, Dan? Uh, I've seen some of them. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Do you like them? Yeah, why not? They're cool. They're new. There's one that fucking kicks ass. The new Gene Stealers just look There's like Gene Stealers, I decided. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, okay. They're, they're, they're a good update. They're, they're more proportioned. I don't know what I was expecting. Okay. A bit more done. What, yeah, what do you want? <laughs> they're just so hard to pick up and use, and it's like, well, that, they're still oh, going to okay. be you know, yeah, 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 possible. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what bases they're on. It's such a weird... It's such a weird... Um, shape for a creature to be it's, it's like it's it, like like they're really bound into this like weird 90s picture of an alien kind of yeah, thing yeah. and they're just stuck with it now like that's yeah. just what they're gonna have to do and they're, they're doing their best they're it's doing some, their like best. it's got them like little ridges on its forehead and <laughs> sacks and things and sacks. tentacles it's got the it's got the kind Identical, of like, tentacle big, faces sort of like cthulhu-esque ganglia exactly. kind of situation going on um, I quite like the the gaunt carrying a sniper rifle. That's I know <laughs> that is really and sick. They, they just they I mean like the whole idea that you would like have this weird like biological alien, but for some reason what they would do is like <laughs> grow into something that kind of looks like they're holding a gun, <laughs> yeah. and they've just taken that to the full extent and just given them like a, like a weird halo sniper rifle. Anyway, yeah. did you see the big one, the emissary? No. I'll send that to you after this. It's fucking sick. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> there it is. Yes. I've decided not to buy that box. I don't think. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. Why not? I think you, st you still might. Let's be honest. I still there. might. There's still time. <laughs> still time. Still time. Um, yeah. Yeah.
All right. Well, that was very good. Uh, we'll be back again with something else uh, non-controversial. And once again, email us, auxiliarystatements, gmail.com, questions, comments, uh-huh. concerns. That was all uh, concerns. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Keep your, if you're going to give us a concern, keep it nice. Keep it nice. I can't. Please, please, please don't answer for me the question, what is enjoyment? Because if I have an answer for that, then it might like dissolve my being. So don't do that. I speaking of which I have now just muted our uh comment notifications for the JFK episodes. If you're one of these people commenting <laughs> on the JFK episodes telling us what pieces of evidence we missed and why we're idiots, you will not be getting a response <laughs> moving forward. I, I didn't know that was on. happening. <laughs> yeah, it's still I'm def- happening. I'm definitely going to go and look at these comments. <laughs> oh god, they're so maddening. It's like how am I supposed to take this seriously? This oh. isn't no research at all. It's like yeah, no shit. <laughs> We're pissing off the right people, Jack. <laughs> the algorithm has us just not for the right reasons. It's like yeah. we will not be putting you into people's feeds for hashtag communization, but we will be for hashtag who killed JFK. <laughs> okay, okay. We just need to get our like hashtag game on point. Yeah, I've been using ChatGPT. That's <laughs> ChatGPT. Give me a list of hashtags for Jules Duvet, and it goes, "Oh, of course. Here you go. Communization. It's pretty fucking sick." Anyway. Right. I'm being mm. automated out of a job. <laughs> automated out of a hobby. That's even more depressing. <laughs> well, on that oh, well. note. On that note. Okay, everybody. We'll see you. Maybe we'll be weeks. here next week, or maybe the chat, chat yeah. GPT version of we'll be here in two yeah. weeks. I did okay. ask Chat GPT when I was bored at work the other day. I was like, what's auxiliary statements? And it was just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, that's fair. Oh, good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would be alarmed if it knew. I know, yeah. yeah. I mind. All right. Mm. Well, I'm okay. off. Dan, thank you so much. <laughs> I might just hang around for a bit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You'll hang around in the, in the podcast studio. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, well, Thanks, okay. Dan. Yeah. I'll turn the lights off. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you've got all the way to the end yeah. of this nonsense. <laughs> I'll stick around I think, for the conversation stuff, but uh, yeah. it's tearing and stuff. Tearing too far, too far. <laughs> no. okay. I want to. I want to talk to the person who's not going to listen anymore because I haven't kept uh, <laughs> up to date with the the full tearing release range. Yeah. <laughs> I've read endnotes one through five, and I was expecting Dan to have no exactly what he was talking about the new tyrannid crime model. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm done. <laughs> The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People 2 by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.